government. We need a media that enriches public discourse, not one that enriches corporations. Hi, I'm Jane Fonda, and this is WBAI, listener-supported, non-commercial radio in New York. This is Julian Assange. You're listening to WBAI New York. Stay strong and keep listening. 9 p.m. WBAI New York, streaming at WBAI.org. Time now for revolutions per minute. Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. Recorded live at WBAI 99.5 in Brooklyn every Wednesday at 9 p.m. RPM's about doing the work. The work to build a democratic socialist future. Each week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in New York City. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. Hey, New York City, you're listening to Revolutions Per Minute, live from the new WBAI Studios a socialist radio show and podcast for members of New York City Democratic Socialist of America. The Democratic Socialist of America is the largest socialist organization in the United States with 95,000 members nationwide, and New York City DSA is its biggest chapter. We are run by our 9,000-plus members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. I'm Lisa Shi, and I use she, her pronouns. For over a month, protests and strikes have rocked the country of Iran in the wake of the death of Masa Amini, a 22-year-old Kurdish-Iranian woman who was arrested while visiting Tehran by the guidance patrol for violating Iran's mandatory hijab law. Despite fierce crackdowns from the Iranian state, these protests, led by women, students, and workers, have made clear the demands for women's rights and autonomy, shouting chants of women, life, freedom, and death to the dictator. Tonight, we hear from Dr. Nagme Soharabi, a professor and scholar of Iranian history and politics about these protests and their connection to the Iranian people's long history fighting for justice and freedom. We're also joined live tonight by Oriana and Tara from Movement Chaptive Collective in New York City. We'll talk to them about the importance of providing spiritual and emotional care to movements through actions, advocacy, direct care to organizers, and as mutual aid. We have an amazing show lined up for you tonight. And first, here are the headlines with Chris Carr. Oh, this is Chris Carr. With the headlines this week brought to you by The Thorn. In local news, former Assembly member Diana Richardson was fired from her position as Deputy Brooklyn Borough President after stories of a toxic workplace environment emerged. The State Department of Education ruled that a Hasidic yeshiva in Brooklyn was failing to provide a basic education in violation of a law, the first ruling of its kind. This ruling directly opposes the position of Mayor Eric Adams' City Department of Education, which believes the school complies with the law. Mayor Adams and municipal union leadership are seeking to force retired city employees to shift into privatized Medicare Advantage plans, but lack support from the city council, who would need to amend city law to enable this plan. Louis Molina, the Department of Corrections Commissioner, wants to expand the use of punitive solitary confinement in response to increased violence at Rikers Island. Mayor Adams finally released his 2021 tax returns, which show modest rental income from the Brooklyn apartment he insisted was his primary residence during last year's election. 
An interview with a former Office of Management and Budget Analyst in Hellgate revealed the ways that the city is increasingly deflating its municipal workforce through slow hiring and salary lowballing. In a desperate attempt to garner sympathy despite skyrocketing rents and profits, a landlord group has launched a Twitter account to showcase vacant units. In election news, November's ballot will include questions to ratify three city charter amendments developed by a racial justice commission. The amendments would add a land acknowledgement to the charter, task a new city office to develop a racial justice plan every two years, and develop a new cost-of-living metric to measure eligibility for government services as an alternative to measurements based on the federal and city poverty lines. City and State previews 12 state Senate races likely to be competitive in next month's general election. After a judge threw out the state legislature's original district maps, New York has more competitive congressional races than almost any other state in the U.S. Those are this week's headlines. I'm Chris Carr. Now back to the studio for tonight's show. Our headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, an incredible weekly newsletter by New York City DSA Electoral Working Group covering local politics and radical activism. You can subscribe at thethornnyc.substack.com. Earlier this week, RPM's own Chris Carr sat down with Dr. Nagme Soharabi, a professor and scholar of Iranian history and politics, to talk about the ongoing protest in Iran and their deeper connection to the Iranian people's decades-long struggle for justice and freedom. Let's listen in. Thank you for coming on the show. Um, Hi, Chris, and thank you for having me, and thank you for inviting me. So before we get started, could you sort of introduce yourself and mention a bit about your background and your expertise? Sure. As, as you just said, I'm Nagme Sarabi. I'm the Charles Corky Goodman Professor of Middle East History at Brandeis. And I'm the Director for Research at the Crown Center for Middle East Studies at Brandeis. I am an historian of the Middle East but specifically I work on modern Iranian history and I'm currently writing a book um, about the experience of the 1970s generation that made the 1979 revolution in Iran possible. Yeah, great. And I'm sure we're definitely trying to wrap in a lot of this sort of historical context into this conversation. More than a month now, there have been this like huge upsurge in protests and strikes and other forms of civil unrest in Iran uh, in the wake of the death of Masa Amini. Uh, so for those who have not been familiar with the events transpiring in Iran, uh, could you explain a bit about what we know, what, what has happened to what happened to, to Masa Amini, and why do you think her death was able to sort of serve as, as this larger catalyst for, for the civil unrest we're seeing now? Yeah, so on September 16th of this year is when basically these protests started. And um, she had been Mahsa Jina Amini. She's a Kurdish-Iranian woman. She was 22 at the time of her death. And she had been picked off the street by what in English we call the morality police, in Persian, it's called Gashti Ershad. She had been picked up for having improper veiling, which is what the morality police does partly, goes around and just picks up people that they think has, have improperly veiled. Um, and then we know that she died in custody. She died in police custody. When that came out, the most important thing, which is connected to your question, is that there was a lot of pressure on her family when they gave them the body, that they bury her and have a private funeral in their hometown, which is in Kurdish Iran. It's a town called Saqqiz. And the family refused to do that. The, her funeral was public. And that became the spark that lit up the series of protests that happened for the first week after her death in particular, and have now continued and changed shape, have been additions to it, but that's really the spark um, that led to it. Why this happened, 
when it happened, it's, you know, why do things happen when they happen? But I would say what was really important was multiple things. I think the, the brave act of her parents, and that is real bravery um, to say that we're not going to sit quiet by having a public funeral, you're saying you're not going to sit quiet. Um, the fact that she was from, I think, Kurdish Iran, and um, that was a very, very important part of the story. And in some ways, the extraordinariness of her circumstance lies in the ordinariness of the situation. People can read themselves and their children into that circumstance. So it's not a political figure that this happened to. It's not an activist because you can create an emotional distance between yourself as an ordinary person. But here's this person who went, got up in the morning, put on her veil, you know, her headscarf, went to Tehran from her town, which is where she got picked up with her brother to see relatives in an ordinary day. And she ended up dead. Um, and, and it makes, to me, it makes sense that she becomes this lightning rod for so many of similar people's grievances. And I would, I would add that the slogan that then became the slogan of that movement, which is women, life, freedom, is a slogan that was picked up from the Kurdish women's movement. So there was also a bit of, there was history there. And that history then caught on and multiplied. Yeah, and I think that's a very like important point about how like Masa like was like a normal person, like who was just like going about in their life and just and after being in, in, in police custody, they were found dead. And yes. I think that's a very easy image for everyone else to sort of latch on to because it's kind of like if this can happen to her, it can happen to you. For many it has happened, not the dying part obviously, but just starting your day normally and then being picked up by these people. Yeah, and I think like a very clear analogy to the United States, which is a lot of other people have mentioned, and I know I've definitely thought about is sort of the response that happened to George Floyd in, in 2020, who was also with this like regular guy who after being murdered by, by Derek Chauvin and, and the police, so it became like this huge modern figure, which was able to be part of this really global movement really, for, for Black Lives Matter, that which came after it. And I think a lot of, a lot of similar dynamics uh, can kind of be applied to both of these situations. Yes, your 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 listeners can't see me nodding my head vigorously, so I will verbalize it and say, "Yeah, absolutely." I mean, no, I I completely agree with you. There are obvious differences, right? Um, and and I'm not. This is not the show for that. But you're right that that would be the moment in the United States that would make the most amount of sense. So, who exactly are these, like, quote unquote, morality police? And so I want you to get into that. And also, can we talk a, a little bit about sort of these, these laws in place, which, kind of, which have sort of dictated women's sort of attire and self-expression in Iran? And like, what is their deeper history? Who, who the Gashti Ershad is, which is the guidance, translates into like guidance rovers, right? People who rove to quote, give guidance. Um, who they are is, is actually super complicated in the sense of there has been manifestations of um, and they have been part of different bodies of the government in the past 40 years since the revolution happened. So rather than say who these guys are, I think I'll expand the question a little bit and say, you know, who are these types of bodies in the Iranian um, system? And since really since veiling, which is connected to the second part of your question, since veiling and in general gender segregation became part of the post-revolutionary government's system of laws, um, there have been different bodies connected to the armed forces, connected to various ministries. They keep changing and shifting, but They've always been that they were, they would, their, their, the idea was that they would go into the streets, right? And they would pick up, particularly women, but also men, by the way, that they deemed to be um, either behaving in a quote, un-Islamic way or dressed in a quote, in an un-Islamic way. In the case of women, that means they're not, they're showing too much hair. Um, their, their attire is not deemed to be, Islamic enough. 
um, in terms of men, it, some, for what, like in, 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 at some point it was like length of hair, it could be tattoos, it could be, you know, all these things. And um, the, the thing about them though, is that this is not a persist, cause it's not a, it's not a kind of thing where every day they are out there, right? Every once in a while, the government kind of unleashes them onto the streets. And people have different theories about what leads to, some people think it's meant to be a distraction from the economic pressures that the government, that the country's under. It could be a whole variety of things, but the fact of the matter is it, that it ebbs and flows, but that ebb and flow actually is what creates also the terror in some ways, but also allows for the kind of resistance that has been happening to it happen. And I think that's really, really important. We're gonna talk about the laws in a second, but as I'm talking about the laws, it's really important for your listeners to know that the latest protests didn't come out of women and men being quiet for 40 years, and then suddenly this issue happens and there's an explosion. There was resistance and has been resistance in different ways to both the compulsory bailing and the compulsory gender segregation from day one that it started. This has a different flavor to it and it feels very different, but it's building up, of course, on basically 40 years of resistance by various generations um, of Iranians. So best, I mean, morality police is a fine translation of it. <laughs> But you know, it's not it's not absolutely accurate. In terms of the history of, of these laws, it's again a very long story, and I and, and I know that time is limited, but I think what I want to hit upon is that a lot of people have been in the press, in the English press, speaking about the 1979, March 8th, 1979 protests by women, which was not just March 8th, there was also a protest on March 11th. But this happened when Ayatollah Khomeini, who was considered to be the leader of the revolution and the first and last word on many things, there was a series of kind of professionally targeted statements about like, you know, women, sh uh, women should put on the veil when they go into X work. And um, on the occasion of March 8th, women came out into the streets protesting this in the name of freedom, because one of the slogans of the Iranian revolution was also the slogan freedom. Now, it's a long story, and there are fantastic books that your listeners can read to learn the story. But what's really important for me in this story is, one, that we use the 1979 March 8 protests as a shorthand to talk about a multiplicity of kind of floating a balloon kind of statements that were made around that time in at towards which a lot of the women reacted and resisted. So um, women could not be, they decreed that women could not be judges in the new political system that was created after the revolution. And the female lawyers went out into the street and protested they lost. I mean, everybody in this story in some ways lost. There were um, decrees about gender segregation in universities and schools, and all of those things happened, but at every step of the way, um, there was resistance to it. The other important point, and I'm conscious of the radio program that we're doing, is that when women went out in March 8th, 1979, a good chunk of the leftist groups that had been part of the Revolutionary Alliance did not support them. Now there are, is a very complicated story about why I did not support them, but it has to do with post-revolutionary power dynamics, alliances. But one, one of the main reasons was that they were told that these are, not, these are side issues, that the main fight is the anti-imperialist fight and that by women going and asking for something that applied supposedly only to them, right? They are diverting attention away from the real fight, um, which is anti-imperialism. Eventually what happened is that the idea of mandatory veiling was actually very, happened gradually. So people went out, women went out in 1979, they pushed back on it. It was an interim government. It retreated a little bit. 
then there would be another push from the radical forces. People would retreat a little, but they, they kept getting pushed until, so there was a, 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 there was like a decree, okay, women have to wear the veil when they go into government offices. And eventually in April of 1983, so four years after the revolution happened, it was parliament passed a law forcing the veil compulsory veiling um onto the population hand in hand with it women and men had to you know in class schools became single sex schools um in universities they could not mingle they had to sit separately and a whole bunch of other things again that was their ideal and they wanted this to happen but because people constantly resisted there it never became exactly what the government wanted and a lot of energy was spent so that people can get a tiny bit um, of freedom in this. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel like that, that's so interesting. I, I feel like there's, there's so much more to go off there to talk about. So spinning off that, as someone who, who has like studied extensively like this history of, of, of revolution in, in Iran, what do you see as some of the similarities and differences between this upsurge that we're seeing now and past in, instances of civil unrest in Iran? There's two ways to look at, two ways to answer your question, right? There's the long, for me, with my expertise, there's the, a, a longer view, right? Which is to say, looking at the history that led to the 1979 revolution and saying, what are the similarities? Um, another way is to make your chunk of time a little bit smaller and say, how does this connect to the series of protests that have been happening in Iran in the 21st century? So for me, my, my, my interest in the revolution is to say, how can we understand the revolution, not from the position of where we are, which is we know that the revolution happened, we know what happened the day after the revolution. Let's look backwards and say how we got here. I'm interested in saying people who were politically active didn't know what was going to happen on February 11th, 1979. So all these years in which they were politically active, working towards something, what did they think they were doing? And how does that then eventually come together and become a revolution itself? And in that sense, for me, I think the biggest comparison I can make, focusing right now just on the current protests with the young people in particular, with the university students and some, and the high school students, is in, in 1967, there were a lot of um, university student protests happening in Iran. And these were supposedly around the issue of things like tuition hikes and the quality of food in the canteens at the universities. And the students were actually active. They were protesting at the in their various universities. And it was not concentrated in the capital city in Tehran, but it was in multiple um, cities. And the reason for me that's the point in which I think about it is because all of that comes together in this moment in 1968, when the students on the occasion of the death of a beloved Olympic gold medal winning wrestler, whose name was Tahti, organized this massive demonstration in Tehran. And they used those networks and that kind of political activity that they had done to do something actually different, which is this massive protest um, onto the streets. Now, this is not a one-to-one -one comparison, but I raise that to say, you know, one of the things that I've been trying to keep my eye on as all of this, as all of this current protest in Iran is happening is also not just the protests that we see of these brave women taking their scarves off in the streets and being surrounded by all of these other people who are protecting them and the chance of women life freedom, which is absolutely fundamental um, to this moment we're in. But also there's actually a bunch of stuff going on throughout universities throughout the country in which the university students are basically engaged in a form of civil disobedience over this. The right to not be segregated during lunchtime 
And this comes after the mass harmony. So they were emboldened by those protests. And it is going on right now. And what they do is that they try to go into the university canteen together. Almost every single instance, the university does not allow them to enter the cafeteria together. So they either take their lunches and go sit outside and mix or in one case, the university didn't give them lunch. So they started just chanting the name of the president of the country, see where's my lunch? see where's my lunch? And eventually they get lunch. Now, this is not as, you know, visually great for um, newspapers or Twitter or anything, but it is a form of broader protest that uses the excuse of something that is limited supposedly to these university students' lives in order to keep this spirit of protest alive. And I think this is whether or not the current moment becomes something that we on the outside deem a success, these things don't die out. And that's what the 79 revolution shows us. Simultaneously, this moment is built upon the fact that basically the history of 21st century Iran has been a number of protests, large and small, that has included various segments of society, maybe never all at the same time, right? So you have the 2009 Green Movement, which is about political rights, with the slogan of where is my vote. Then you have a series of protests in 2017, 2018, 2019, 2021, that are around cost of living and economic rights of people, these all seemingly die out, right? But the people on the streets today know they happen because they live through them. And I think there, in that sense, there is a continuity um, of spirit, for lack of the better word, between what happened in the past and what is happening today. I think this has been a fantastic conversation. I think we could probably go on for another 20 or 30, 30 minutes if, if given the opportunity. But, but in closing, thank you, Nagme. This has been a fantastic time. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Chris. I really enjoyed it. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI, broadcasting in New York City at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lee Zishi, and soon we'll be talking to Oriana and Tara um, from the New York City Movement Chaplain Collective. Um, and if you're like me, you know, you might hear the word chaplain, and I think of this thing from like an old movie or something of somebody sick and dying. So I'm really excited um, to talk to Oriana and Tara, because I'm sure they're going to kind of blow that apart and put it together in this amazing kind of organized, focused way. Um, but first... As our regular listeners know, uh, we got to hit you up for money first. We are listener sponsored. Um, and if you are a regular listener, um, you might have known that I recently moved out of Brooklyn and to Tucson, Arizona. Um, Amy and Jack did a really touching show a couple weeks ago um, where they did a little tribute to some of the work that I've done while in New York City um, and really highlighted what RPM is all about, which is about highlighting organizing and how people can get connected into organizing and how organizing is a part of a very um, long history of taking on capital in so many different ways. And, you know, somebody who went to school for journalism but has found a lot of my life's work being around organizing, I have just been so incredibly grateful for WBAI the last several years um, for giving me so many opportunities to talk about eco-socialism um, and how that impacts every New York City resident's life. Um, this kind of space, um, the kind of folks that we have on, you don't hear that on a lot of other radio stations um, because they get a lot of their money through ads um, from the same people who are driving these problems um, in capitalism. So um, it's been an amazing run um, that we've had as revolutions per minute here on listener sponsored WBAI. And I really, really encourage you to, if you missed it, check out the show that Jack and Amy did. Um, that's highlighted all we've been able to accomplish being given this space here on WBAI. Um, and if it's something that you appreciate, 
help keep us on the air. We, we are only on the air because of listeners like you. Um, so you can give to the station by calling 212-209-2957. Again, that number is 212-209-2950. Or you can go to WBAI.org. Uh, you can become a monthly sustainer in the name of Revolutions Per Minute if you appreciate our show. Um, you know, I am now in Tucson, so I might not be paying New York City rent prices anymore, but unfortunately, WBAI is. And we all know rent here is getting so difficult. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a big donation. Um, but if you can give a little bit or a lot, you know, please help us pay the rent. Please help us stay on the air. Um, again, to give to the station, you can call 212 209 2950. Again, that number is 212-209-2950. And we will be opening up the phone lines later to hear from you. So please stay tuned for that. We would love to hear from you. Uh, but now I'm really excited to dig into our conversation with Oriana and Tara from the New York City Movement Chaplain Collective. Um, we would love for you to just introduce yourselves um, to our guest, uh, Tara. Can we start with you? Welcome to RPM. Thank you. Thank you for having us. My name is Tara, she, her pronouns, um, and I consider myself an abolitionist and a foot soldier for the movement. So less an organizer, but just someone who's always willing to throw down and put my body on the line um, when that's called for. Thanks, Tara. And my, my name is Oriana. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, ella. I'm a native New Yorker, I'm an organizer, and I'm a spiritual care provider in a healthcare setting. I'm also a sister and a runner, and I'm really happy to be with you all. I'm so glad both of you are here, because um, kind of like I was saying a little bit before, you know, I, I think I when I hear the word chaplain or chaplaincy, um, I have this like weird image of like somebody sad on their deathbed and they're like calling for, you know, the, the hospital chaplain um, or, you know, it's like the baby isn't baptized. Um, but I know there's so much more to it. So, Oriana, could you kind of talk about what is movement chaplaincy and then a little bit more about your group here in NYC? Yeah, totally. I think I'll just start off by defining a little bit what chaplaincy is, right? Because even that is so so nebulous to folks who never heard of it or have this idea of um, chaplaincy being something that is related to being like a, a priest or a pastor, um, which is not necessarily true. So I think the best way of explaining it is that a chaplain, and I'll speak, you know, in the health context of a healthcare setting, um, is someone who, let's say, is maybe located in a hospital, although chaplains are everywhere. They're in corporations, they're in the military, right? Um, there are psychedelic chaplains like myself starting to form. Um, and essentially, we are folks who identify as either religious or not religious. Uh, one of the top chaplains in our country is an atheist at Harvard. Um, and so we have folks from all religious traditions and backgrounds who do work outside of the uh, religious institution, right? So we're not found usually in churches, but we're outside of them, uh, ministering to people, I would say. And I know that's a really big word, but essentially I think the best way of understanding it is being present to someone suffering. Um, and so that's what I, how I would define chaplaincy and Tara, of course, you're welcome to, to tune in. Um, and I can also define movement chaplaincy based on what the Faith Matters Network has really come to define it as. Um, it's it, Quite simply, it's just the idea that movement chaplaincy is the work of spiritual accompaniment to any social justice movement and or their leaders, right? So when I get asked this question often, I kind of roll my eyes because what is movement chaplaincy? Like in many ways it's existed for a very long time and in some ways it's being co-created right now, right? Um, to me, movement chaplaincy is simply the intersection of spiritual care and social justice movement work, right? So that's how I would explain it. And I'll, I'll pass it on to Tara. Yeah, and um, the New York City Movement Chaplaincy Collective, we're very new, um, but we're just a collective of people committed to providing spiritual and emotional care to movements through actions and advocacy, um, through direct care to organizers and as mutual aid. 
Um, so we really recognize that people come into this movement for justice and liberation from really the softest parts of themselves, the most loving and tender parts that really just want every human being to be treated with dignity, to have a home, to have food, to have a livable planet, and to not fear for their lives every time that they encounter a police officer. So we want to nourish that softest part because when we're in the streets or doing movement work, we have to put on such tough exteriors. People think of us as so aggressive and so combative, um, but that's just how we have to present when we're being attacked. Um, and so we recognize that underneath those really tough exteriors are just like really tender parts of our humanity that can't withstand the pain and the darkness of it all and have to speak out. Um, so that's what we want to nurture in our collectives, in our in our movement spaces. And maybe just one thing to add, Lee, I'm so sorry, is that, um, and I do think it's important to name this, the movement was uh, co-founded, forgive me if I, this is incorrect, but I'm pretty sure we did this a few months ago, if, at least it feels like that. And it was co-founded by two Union Theological Seminary folks, uh, myself and my my friend, uh, Bran. And I just wanna you know say that because I think it's important when collectives start often um, there's, it's hard to have accountability of like who started this thing. And so we're, we're part of it. We're not in leadership, but we, we are the founder, co-founders of this collective. Yeah. And that's one thing we love to do here on RPM is, you know, a lot of times movements are covered, but, you know, connecting it to real people and their real experiences. Um, and, and hearing you talk about, you know, bringing tenderness to a movement and our best selves, um, is definitely something very interesting to reflect on, um, in, you know, after hearing the interview we just heard um, about protests in Iran, where we know people are experiencing, you know, extreme police brutality um, from the state in the streets. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's also happening here. Um, it's happened in this country for a very, very long time. And, you know, the civil rights movements of the 1960s, um, you know, were anchored by many religious organizers, um, especially in, um, people who are mobilizing in community of color. Um, and so Tara, can you talk a little bit about like what role um, you see faith communities playing in our social movements today? Yeah, um, so as you just said, like Dr. Soharobi was just talking about how um, this whole resurgence and movement started because someone wasn't Islamic enough. Um, and so, so many of these repressive tactics have really religious foundations to it. And we think it's really important to come out as faith leaders and spiritual people and just say that that's not the entire narrative. Um, you know, for me, I grew up Catholic. And so um, for my faith community, I think it's time for us to step up and say that our roots are very radical. Um, Jesus was murdered because he was a brown Palestinian socialist man who was speaking up against state violence and oppression. And so the state murdered him. Um, so um, these tr these religious traditions that have been really kind of co-opted by white supremacy and by capitalism and that have really just started to perpetuate so much harm, we have to reclaim that. And we have to say that um, like, what does it mean to not be Islamic enough? What does it mean to not be Christian enough? Or to, for me to say that I'm a, you know, very proud queer female um, Christian who, you know, has every intention of getting ordained. Like, we, we're, we just want to flip the scripts and say, like, it's really time for us to reclaim the radical roots and radical narratives of so many religious traditions um, that have just been so damagingly um, co-opted by white supremacy. Yeah, and thank you for that, Tara. I was really helpful to hear sort of, you know, you rooting yourself in your faith tradition and your background. I think one thing I'll add to this, Lee, when we, we read this question, we were thinking about how uh, this sort of applies, this question applies to our collective. And just being really transparent, we are very new. And this collective was co-founded by two um, non-Black people, right? I'm not, I identify as a non-Black person of color, um, first generation. You know, my father was born in Colombia. My mother was born in the Caribbean, the Dominican Republic. Um, and our collective is uh, not as Black and brown as 
I think any of us desire to be, but I can certainly speak for myself and the few people of color in it, not enough for the, for us. Right. So that's something that we definitely um, are cognizant of and um, aware that these social movements, right. The civil rights, like social movements have often benefited very much from the labor of black and brown uh, leaders. And yeah, um, we're very much thinking thoroughly and wanting to figure out ways to make sure that our collective is actually representing the folks that need to be um, most represented. Yeah, it's not something everybody recognizes and it's such an important thing to to actually ground um, the people that are most impacted. Um, and, you know, one, because also BIPOC, particularly Black women, you know, non-gender, uh, non-face, uh, you know, the the hardest of the harms often, um, whether that comes from the state or often within the own, from within our own movements, unfortunately. Um, so such an important thing to address. Um, and, you know, when describing the work of your collective, um, you talked um, about preventing harms and also about, you know, helping people bring, you know, their best selves to this. So can you talk about um, some of the harms that activists are at risk of encountering in the movement, um, in protest, and what um, your collective is doing to address those? Uh, Oriana, if you want to start with that. Sure thing. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll start off, I'll root myself in the the me i am not sharing on the radio what i where i actually work right and i'm actually not even thrilled that my, i'm using my name tonight i usually try to use um sort of my, my movement name um because we, there tends to be a um goodness we become magnets <laughs> uh, for, for for violence right for a lot of white fragility i would say and so um when i think about the harms that you know movement chaplains encounter i mean i'll speak for myself i've been doxxed uh several times and constantly have to think about um you know what does it mean to be public facing right and uh can i actually like forget getting arrested right like there's just there's so much, like i can lose my job um if people actually know like my political views um and so I would say that I, I think a barrier, and I, I'm, I'm curious to know what Tara thinks about this, a barrier, right, for, for a lot of movement chaplains is if you are someone who um, has a really high stakes job, right, and your movement chaplaincy work is sort of on the side, so to speak, right, um, how, how do you do that and, and not risk your livelihood, especially if you're taking care of children or, yeah. I'll pass it to you, Tara. Yeah, man. Um, harms that activists are at risk of feels like they're endless. Um, you know, obviously, we as a collective want to focus on, you know, emotional and spiritual um, harm. But we also have to name that activists face very real physical safety when they engage in the movement. Um, you know, in New York, the SRG, the Strategic Response Group, which is a self-selecting unit within the NYPD, that's technically a counterterrorism unit, but they just harass protesters. They show up to direct actions, and when they hit the ground, we know things are about to escalate and that comrades' physical safety is in danger. Um, and so these are some really serious safety threats to on-the-ground activists. And we have to be really clear about the kinds of danger they pose to the movement and spaces in the city. Um, so part of our role is to show up, put our bodies on the line um, alongside our other comrades and just say that we're in this and to name that we're in this as spiritual, like as spiritual beings. I am showing up in the streets because my faith, my radical you know, Christian faith demands that I show up in the streets. Um, and then, you know, in terms of spiritual and emotional and psychological harm, it's incredibly distressing to see what our leaders are doing to our communities. It's incredibly, it's horrific to see when activists are asking Eric Adams what he's going to do to restore the budget cuts to education to hear him say, pray for us. You know, like that's not an answer. And it's distressing to see police officers putting their hands on our comrades and to see the trees in the East River Park being torn down. And 
So we need spaces to collectively grieve and just process the just onslaught of, you know, really terrible things happening in this community. Um, so we can provide accompaniment and relational support during these times. Um, we support each other connect um, through connecting spiritual and contemplative practices to the movement. Um, we can serve as a resource in centering and grounding during gatherings of any kind. Um, and then we all show up as chaplains with our individual gifts and talents. Um, I, I teach yoga from a trauma-informed perspective. I love offering prayer. Um, there are like people who work in somatic healing in our collective and body work, people who work with herbal remedies. Um, so there's really no one way that we can show up, but by bringing all of our, you know, skills, talents that we've been blessed with and saying, this is what we want to offer to the spiritual care of our communities. Um, you know, that's, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, somebody who's been doing organizing for a very long time, you know, the, just so many things you're saying about burnout and, you know, having done a lot of direct actions, um, just seeing how violent police can be or just how little they actually care about the safety of people. You know, I've been in direct actions where people shut down the street and the cops opened up a lane right next to them. So huge trucks were right next to them. You know, that's putting that person's life at risk. You know, just arrest them then. Like they clearly don't care about public safety. I've you know, been blocking a door and been assaulted by somebody and the police just looked the other way. Um, and I'm, you know, a, a white woman. So if, if they don't care about my public safety, um, you know, obviously they don't care about a lot of other folks as well. Um, and so, Oriana, you mentioned, you know, some of the challenges you faced, you know, potential, you've been docs before. What are some of the other challenges that you face, you know, as a movement chaplain? Yeah, thank you for that. I think what, what comes up always initially is sort of our identity, like the identity issue, right? Like what is movement chaplaincy? We're all defining it. Um, and what makes you a movement chaplain, right? There is a really cool course that uh, Faith Matters Network was hosting called the Daring Compassion uh, Training. I believe it was like hybrid or virtual. I think it was virtual. Um, and at the end, you get a certificate that says you're a movement chaplain. What does that mean, <laughs> right? Like um, you do the homework and that's it, right? Like do you even show up to a to a action? So I, from, I think the, the biggest challenge right now that comes up for me is like, how do you self-identify? And then how do you find the others, right? And our collective is trying to figure that out. Do you know, what what is it that we want to focus on? Do we just show up at actions and have armbands on us so that we're easily identifiable? Um, what is it that we're doing? What's our purpose and our identity? So that's one. And then again, safety. And I don't think that can, I don't think that can be underscored. You know, I, um, I used to, when I wanted to go to seminary, I remember very naively telling people that, part of my interest was, was so that I would get a collar. And I had this idea that a collar would protect me. Um, cause I, I was rooted very deeply in my Christian tradition. And I thought I would get protected. Like the cops wouldn't hit me cause I have a collar on. <laughs> and clearly I was missing a lot of history about social movements, right. And civil rights that, that means nothing. Um, unfortunately, uh, depending on the body that you're in and often it actually just means nothing with the cops. Right. So I, I think that one's physical well-being and also for people of color, like whether or not you are able to hold your employment and be in certain spaces, um, if you identify as a movement chaplain. I'm curious what Tara, what you think. Yeah, um, when you were talking, it reminded me of when um, Dr. Cornell West was talking about how at Charlottesville, they thought that if all of the religious leaders stood in the front of the line in between the cops and the counter protesters that they would protect everyone. And Dr. West said that the protesters were ready to squash them like bugs. Um, so, you know, we were really in it with everyone else. Um, but then also how do we exist as spiritual people, as religious people that are trying to reclaim the narratives of faith traditions who have done an atrocious amount of, horrific things to our community. Like, I, I don't know how I, I'm, I'm just barely reclaiming the identity of Christian because as a queer woman and who grow, grew up at the time of learning about all of like the pedophile scandal within the Catholic church, I don't, I have no idea how to reconcile that I'm now like realizing 
who Jesus was as a very radical historical figure and what the term Christian means now. And so when we show up to spaces and we want to bring the spiritual and religious element, that's traumatic for people. And um, that's really legit. And so trying to figure out this balance of wanting to bring spirit, wanting to bring the divinity within all of us to the surface without causing the harm of religious traditions is is tough. Um, and, and I don't have the answer for that. Yeah. Reclaiming Jesus as a radical socialist from the hands of far right capitalists. It's a, it's a whole task. Um, you've brought up so many, um, you know, things I'd love to respond to, but I also would really love to give our listeners a chance to call in. Um, we're opening up the phone lines for the next six or seven minutes that we're on the air. Um, you can call in at 212-209-2877. Again, that is that number is 212-209-2877. Um, Tara, as we're waiting for our listeners to call in, um, can you talk about any best practices you have for organizers to prevent burnout? Um, you know, it's a very, it can be very intense. You know, how do people can ground themselves when there's difficult actions going on? Woo! Wish I had the answer to that one. Um, I, you know, I struggle myself. I struggle so much. Um, and to me, the answer is just always community. Um, we we have to stay rooted in our community. I have, you know, completely kind of lost hope in this like global revolution. But if you look to what, you know, different communities are doing throughout New York, there are little revolutions happening every day. Um, and so staying rooted in the small scale work that's making a difference in people's lives right now. Um, but we we're starting this movement chaplaincy collective because we want to create spaces for us to recognize that we are all burnt out and we are, you know, all just completely overwhelmed and we want to continue to do this work. So let's figure out how to do it together and let's, you know, collectively figure out what, what our spiritual needs are that we're not weak if we have to talk about the fact that we are suffering and um and we you know again going back to these like tenderest parts of ourselves that are the reason that we're all doing the work um we have to own that we all are tender and you know none of us are no matter how strong we look when we're facing cops like it's just, it, it's a lot for us and we have to do it in community. We have to do it together. And when we don't have the words, um, seeking out other people who have the words. Lately, I've been reading the Black Trans Prayer Book by Jay Mace III and Lady Dane Frigueroa Aditi. And it, it's so life-giving when I just, you know, I get home from an action, I make sure everyone's home safe. I can take a deep breath and I am totally depleted. And then I read this prayer book that just, you know, gives me more inspiration. So, um, you know, we, we just have to keep leaning on each other. And the Movement Chaplaincy Collective is here um, for all of, you know, listeners, activists, um, organizers to lean on us um, um, in, in whatever way that looks like and whatever way we co-create together. And maybe I'll just add, Tara, from my perspective, pleasure. Um, really, I, I don't think that was like, as a as a preventative strategy for burnout, right? Like, I feel like I didn't learn that till late in my organizing career. Whether that's sex for you, I mean, I don't care. Like, whatever that looks like, um, pleasure, like really, and indulging in that if you're able to, um, I, I think is super important. Uh, it's it's the thing that gives me sort of the, the buoyance to keep doing the work that I do. Yeah, as a as a climate organizer, one of my go to saying is like party like the apocalypse is coming because it is. And, you know, it's I, I know how bad things are going to get. You know, I've seen amazing organizing stop fossil fuel capital in its tracks, but I've seen it. I know it's running amok and I know things are going to be really bad. And another kind of thing that's kept me, you know, going sometimes when unfortunately anger and is, is something that I think that motivates me much and so much. And I realize that's like really bad. And then, so I kind of always have to come back to this thing where like, I'm not going to let them steal my joy, you know? And it, it just is very difficult because this, it's, this work can be so 
incredibly difficult when you're just like ramming your head um, against a system that doesn't want to change. And that system is also trying to grind you into dust, um, as David Alexis said when he was on this show. So yeah, so I definitely believe um, in partying like the apocalypse is coming um, and pleasure and community are, are what gets us through. Um, so yeah, if people do want to um, get more involved or um, have you come to one of their actions? Um, yeah, how can people get connected after the show? Yes, um, you can reach out to us on Instagram. Our, our Instagram is NYC Movement Chaplains. So at NYC Movement Chaplains. And then our email is NYC Movement Chaplains. Um, chaplains is plural at protonmail.com. Um, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for being on. Any final quick thoughts before we, we leave our audience today? I think just no, I'm going to go party like the apocalypse. Yeah, and I think if, if on my end, if you're curious about what Movement Chaplaincy is, or if you think, you know, it, it means something different to you, like, come, please, come join us. We'd love to hear. We'd love to co-collaborate and figure out, you know, how to make this movement sustainable and sexy and powerful together. Well, thank you both so, so much for being on and completely, I, I was hoping, shattering my vision of what a chaplain is and refiguring it in a very beautiful, organizing-centered way. Um, you've been listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. To connect with us after the show, you can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com, and you can find us on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com, or on Twitter at NYC RPM. I'm Lisa Shi. Have a wonderful night, New York City. We'll catch you next week. Hello. Bueno, this is Sonia Sanchez. I urge you to give your generous support to listener-sponsored community radio, WBAI 99.5 FM in New A young genius made a classic that could never be retold. Now, it must be told again. Uh, this is Peter Bergman on All Mixed Up. And I am all mixed up, but not so confused, not so habitually bewildered that I don't listen to WBAI when I come to town to Gotham. I love New York and I love BAI. You're tuned to High Five. Hey, Harry, old buddy, old pal. I want you to be my buddy. Why can't we be friends? You've got a friend. Friend. Good. Friends or buddies as we like to refer to you as here at WBAI. Either way, we invite you to join us and become a member of this fine radio station. We want to partner with you, but we want to do it in the least imposing and most painless way possible. Here's the deal. It's called the Buddy Pledge. You give us your support for 12 months, and we give you access to the most eclectic music as well as the best and thought-provoking news, talk, and community affairs. Sound good? See it in your heart to pledge a minimum of $10 per month. Each payment will automatically be deducted from your credit or bank statement, so there's no reminders need it. Just join us for a one-year membership and go online at www.give2wbai.org. That's give numeral 2wbai.org and be part of our vibrant community. WBAI New York. Greetings and salutations. This is Giovanni Anglin. And I'm Bastian Nissa. Along with intern Mike, you can catch us live on Thursday from midnight to 2 a.m. You know what, Bash? Our tagline is that this is the show about nothing, but it's more than that, right? 
That's true. Our conversations could be political, but also comical. We're really just giving our point of view on how we see the world and how it affects us today. So join us Thursdays at midnight, BAI listeners, only on 99.5 FM, WBAI New York. Hey, remember me? Yeah, you do that announcement. Yeah, right, yeah. It's the station identification. Um, I need to do it again. Oh, well, hold on. How about I do it? Okay. Yeah, uh... So, it's, uh... You turned to... Tuned to. Yeah, you... Yeah. You, you, you tuned, tuned to radio to station. radio station WB... What is it? AI. WBAI. Oh, you yeah. tuned to WBAI New York. Listener Spangled... Sponsored. 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 Uh, listener Sponsored. Non-commercial Pacifica Radio in New York. Streaming at Dreaming WBAI dot org. Huh? Good. Really? Well, would you get back in there? Sure. <laughs> 